I mean, why add complexity if you don't get paid for it? You have to get paid a lot to add complexity. Otherwise, the complexity is not worth having there. If you put the complexity in, you will have a much more difficult time executing it. It's much less likely to work because it's probably just over-optimized. If you use your 10 indicators that has to be working together and give you the signals, well, odds are that this just happened to work because you over-optimized it. You fitted perfectly to, to the recent past. Now, when I, when I wrote my first book, I thought I made a very simple a trading model. The whole point with the model I show in the first book, following the trend, is that it's supposed to be a very simple model to describe generally what the trend-following industry does. My biggest regret with that book is that I didn't make it even more simple. Much to my surprise, no one raised that concern. I didn't hear it once. Instead, my book took off in a way that surprised both me and my publisher. After two years, my publisher tells me that I, against all odds, ended up in the top 5% of finance book authors. It was a fun ride and I learned a lot along the way. This is a quote from the preface of the latest book written by today's guest. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thank you so very, very much for tuning in today. For those of you who are regular listeners, you know that my goal with the podcast is to share the stories of some of the great traders in the world and to ask those questions they don't usually get asked to help you get more clarity, confidence and courage to take your own trading or investment career a step further. Today you're listening to episode 91. If this is your first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. Before we find out who's on today's show, I just want to mention that today's episode is brought to you by Eurex, and given all the current market volatility relating to US rate hikes and the slowdown in China, you'll find some very useful ways of hedging your portfolio risk if you visit the Eurex website. This is Andreas Klinov, Chief Investment Officer at ASIS Asset Management in Zurich, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersonplug.com website and sign up to receive access to all of them. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Andreas, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Niels. Happy to be here. Good. Now, Andreas, today we are going to make full use of the many talents that you have. On one hand, you are running your own systematic investment strategies, which requires a lot of the various disciplines that I often discuss with guests on the podcast. But also, you allocate to external managers, which is a rare combination. So perhaps we can touch on this skill set as well. And of course, many people know you as the author of two books, the first one, following the trend, which caters to an audience that is interested in the classical way of using trend-following strategies on a basket of futures contracts, and your latest book, Stocks on the Move, which goes into why and how you need to trade stocks when applying a rule-based approach. Is that a fair summary, you would say? Pretty much, yes. <laughs> Good. Now, for full disclosure, Andreas, I read your first book a few years ago, mm -hmm. so I may not remember all of the details, and I have read most of your latest book leading up to our conversation today, but I'm, I'm sure you will guide me to the more juicy bits uh, of both books during our talk. But before we jump in, I just have this simple question that I try to ask all my guests in order to appreciate the different answers there is to the question, and basically it's how you respond when a person you haven't met before asks what you do. 
How do you explain what you do, Andreas? <laughs> well, I had this running joke back in Sweden anyway, when uh, someone asked me who has no insight in the business whatsoever, I just shrug and say that I, I make rich people richer. <laughs> that might not be the most accurate description, but it's, uh, it's funny enough. Uh, what do I do? Well, I am chief investment officer of a, um, a little bit different shop here in Zurich. We are a top of family office. Uh, that means that much of the capital that we manage belongs to uh, to us, the partners, uh, me and my partner. Uh, that gives us a large degree of flexibility. We can do well what we think makes sense with this pool of money. We can uh, we can create our own strategies. We can take in investor money since we are also a licensed asset manager here in Europe. Uh, we can invest in other people's products. We can do private equity deals. We can do all kinds of deals and investment that makes sense. Obviously, if you if you manage a reasonably large pool of money, it doesn't make sense to put it all in one strategy, not even if it's your own really great strategy. <laughs> Therefore, we do a lot of different things and that usually surprises people that we're in so many areas. Obviously, I'm, as I say, I'm mostly, well, most, mostly known for the systematic, systematic side, uh, primarily because of the, the two books I wrote about the subject, but that's one out of many things that we do really sure no absolutely but i'm gonna stay with your story at least for a little bit longer because i'm i'm curious to know how you got to where you are today and mm -hmm. and i wanted to put some extra color in that so so tell me a little bit like you know what were you like a kid or a young man growing <laughs> up uh, where and, and 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 where that all took place um let me see i'm actually from a, a very small town up in uh, up, up in uh, rural sweden Pretty much the uh, Midwest, the Kansas of Sweden, if you like. Uh, it's the kind of place where you look around, you see a flat horizon in all directions. It's um, it's a town that really, I'm not making this up. I couldn't make this up. It's a town that uses the slogan "most cow dense city of Sweden." Town, to be uh, to be fair, there's more more cows per square meters than anywhere else in the country. That is the tourist slogan of where I'm from. So you see where we start in the story sure, here. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I never saw. I never saw a cow in my life growing up, but you know that doesn't uh, let me escape the the uh, reputation of the town itself. Sure. Um, I, I went to school in Gothenburg, and while I was there, I got increasingly interested in in uh, in trading. Well, in two topics actually, in trading and computers. Okay. Computer interest I had for many years before, but I guess I I kind of developed the skills a little bit better uh, during those years. I started finance in, in Gothenburg School of Economics, and these two things kind of started melting together more and more. Sure. Uh, I started a computer consultancy company uh, back in those days. This was, of course, uh, mid to early 90s. And, well, who didn't have a computer company back then, right? Right. It was almost too easy. I mean, if you, if you knew computers back then, uh, the way that most people, well, pretty much everyone knows computers today, if you have had a decent base skill, well, you were in demand back then. Sure. So me and... Actually, a lot of my buddies back then were running uh, similar type of companies. We were doing training, programming, servers, networks, computer security, these kind of things. During this time as well, I, uh, I got more and more into, into the whole trading thing. I read a lot of trading books. I got into all the deep, <laughs> the deep rabbit holes of, of uh, technical analysis, all of these things. Um, that, by the way, I think we might return to that later if I know you're right. But sure. uh, that, that's... Um, that's probably something that makes me a little bit different than most people in my situation. Uh, I find it unusual that uh, that people, hedge fund managers and the like, uh, come from the normal background, so to speak, or the normal retail trading background to begin with, or reading TA books and all of these things. That's uh, on the unusual side, I think, and that's sure. it was good and bad for me. But anyhow. Um, I had my company back then, and I figured some sometime late nineties that it was time to kind of grow up and do something real for a living. And I, uh, I left the whole entrepreneurial thing and uh, joined a company that was back then called Reuters. Now it's merged and called Thomson Reuters. Uh, I was head of uh, their financial consultancy up in Nordic for a while. This was interesting, I have to say. It's an interesting learning experience to be on the corporate side for a while. Sure. Uh, I learned a lot about corporate world, and most of all, I learned about how I don't really belong there. <laughs> well, I, I realized, funny enough, I think a lot of people realize the same thing, but see, the, the better you get at something in that kind of environment, the less you get to do it. Right. 
this one learning experience. The other one was that, well, if you want to get something done in a corporate environment, you have to break the rules. Sure. And then you have to be, be lucky and get away with it. I'm, I'm not talking about regulations or any you know, sure. law, laws or these kind of rules, but rather the, the rules that tell you that here is your box and here is what you're allowed to do in the company and here's what you're allowed to have opinions about. Yeah. So what I, what I, what I figured out quite quickly, and I guess that's, that's where I'm heading with the story, why I, I changed everything in the end. What I figured out is to get something done, to get ahead in, in a corporate environment, I had to just go ahead and do what I was sure needed to get done, whether or not I was authorized to, to do this or not. Instead of the usual you know, committees, approvals, uh, teleconference and project managers and discussions and so on, I just got it done mostly by myself in the evenings and weekends and um, presented it. Sure. And what usually happened, lucky me, is uh, a lot of people want to get me fired, a lot of other people want to promote me, and lucky me, the people who wanted to promote me won. I got away with that a few times, and a few years later, I was uh, head of Rogers' quant development team in Geneva for equities and commodities. And I was slowly starting to get increasingly cynical about that other point I was learning, that the better you get at getting things done, the better you are at getting things done, the less they let you do it. Sure. I found myself in the end at the age of, well, before 30, I guess. Well, I don't want to think back how old I am. Uh, somewhere around that age, I figured out that here I am in teleconferences all day, talking to people who talk on teleconferences all day, discussing headcounts back and forth, discussing projects and budgets for things we all know has no real meaning anyway, right? Mm. Things that doesn't really matter. We're just fighting over should Geneva do it, or should Paris do it, or should London do it, and we spend half a year and I don't know how many millions on discussing this. And I was increasingly feeling that, you know, it's it's nice. I have a nice title. They pay me nice money, but I, I can't keep doing this. For my own sanity, I can't be here in 20 years. Uh, nothing nothing bad about Reuters. It's not, it was a nice company to be with. I think this is a phenomenon you find in all large organizations. Sure. Uh, this happens after a while. Well, how did I move from there to... Exactly. That's sort of <laughs> corporate world. And then at some point you, I guess, decide uh, enough is enough. Yeah, basically, um, I did what I what I tend to do a few times when I, I when I've done a few times in the past when I felt like I was either in trouble or I need to get something, change something. Um, you 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 basically raise a flag and hope to, hope that a friendly sees it. <laughs> uh, make yourself visible, sure. and someone will find you. I did that. I got a bit lucky back then. Uh, this was well ten years plus ago, something like that. Sure. I happened to buy. Absolute coincidence, run into people who had large sums of money they needed to have managed. They had some basic idea on how it should be done, but not really the details, and they don't want to do it themselves. Sure. I understand completely how improbable this whole thing seems, and that's what it seemed like to me at the moment as well, at that time as well. But that got me into the whole hedge fund space. We started up a hedge fund uh, back then. Over Back in those days, it was... Quite straightforward to start a hedge fund, at least over here. Sure. Uh, regulations, well, let's just say that wasn't too important for the regulators at that time. They, the regulators allowed all kinds of things that today would be impossible. Uh, you set up offshore hedge funds in the Caymans and, well, it was quick, cheap, and easy, and compliance and all of these things was minimum. Now it's a whole different world. Uh, today it wouldn't be possible to do what, what we did back then. Uh, not not legally anyhow, I'm sure people do it, but back then we could, within the current framework at the time, do these kind of things, which we, we couldn't have done now. So I, I kind of got lucky and, what's the expression, I, I stepped on a banana peel and slipped into the business. Um, obviously I had some background to begin with, I had hopefully a decent preparation for what I jumped into, but things developed quite well. I had a couple of more times where things kind of happened in the right direction, but in the end, my, my, my general philosophy is that you have to, for this seemingly improbable things to happen, you have to create the circumstances for it. Sure. If I can just stop you there, I'm, I'm just curious because, so you say you meet some people who have money to, to be managed and, and you, you start a hedge fund, but at, at what stage had you already started managing your your own money did you have a strategy i mean where does that fit in because usually mm -hmm. even rich people don't give money to people who don't have some some level of 
of uh, you know uh, experience in in what they want them to do. So so where did that start? Okay, uh, I mean, obviously I had been trading my own money for, for a long time, but uh, at the time I would say my money was in the context of things fairly insignificant. Sure. Uh, Rogers paid me well, but not that well. <laughs> uh, I've been well. I started out with. Like most people, I guess, in, who wants to get into the business, I started out building trading systems back was already back in mid nineties. Uh, simple you know, Metastock trade station what was a call back then. Sure. Yeah, uh, the, the usual suspects of, of technical analysis programs, and of course now looking back, I realized just how how amateurish those things were. But you know, we all have to start somewhere. I remember I, I was building a, a point-and-figure plotter in Excel that automatically reads real-time from Reuters and, and makes a point-and-figure chart in Excel. I don't know what that's good for, but <laughs> I, I did those kind of things in a way. Okay. Uh, I guess my trading, if you want to step back to that, at the beginning, I, I liked trading back in the 90s, and I thought I was really good at it. Right. I made very good money, but... You know where I'm going with this, don't sure. you? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> who didn't make good money? Exactly. Who, who didn't long long really technology smart. stocks. Oh yeah, I, I was I was really smart. You know what? I, you know my strategy. I bought Nokia. Right. That, that's <laughs> the strategy. This is the nineties. Uh, and it, most most people trading back then were trading the long side of of the equity markets, and it didn't matter what you throw the dart at. It's going to hit something profitable. Yeah. So I, I guess I got lucky. If I had started trading, in I don't know. 99, 2000, something right. like that. I would have taken some losses, and I would have, you know, done something real for a living instead. So I'm what do you? So, so what do you think that the people that you met, what did they want you to do specifically initially when you started off? Well, they wanted me to develop. They had, they had, they had some basic idea, trading ideas that they were unable to develop, to test, and to implement. Okay. And they needed someone to do this full time as well, mm. which they were not prepared to do at that time. I guess we spent a few months uh, discussing the whole thing. Uh, I built some, sorry, some some prototypes for them, and this is uh, also something I always keep stressing in my books and website and things that programming skills are absolutely vital in this business. Sure, it doesn't matter if you plan to be uh, the cool hedge fund manager with a staff of, of twenty programmers. You have to learn mm. at least basic programming, simple programming that is. Yeah, I developed some things. Uh, we launched with. Uh, let me see. What was it back then? It was it wasn't big, but it wasn't insignificant. Thirty, forty million, something like that. I guess. Sure. sure. Uh, which was a de- decent enough starting base back then. Absolutely, still is. I think. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's enough to start with for sure. And we did well for for a few years on that. And uh, yeah, it was fun for a while. Uh, it's not it's not the uh, the fund of the company I'm with now. And uh, I left that on well. Some years ago, I can't really remember the time frame at the moment, sure. but I don't know, six, seven years ago, something like that, and moved to my present position at ACS. Sure. Uh, ACS uh, is not, that's a question I, I always get, it's not some sort of uh, abbreviation based on my name. <laughs> uh, the company has been around since uh, 1995, and back then, well... Back then, I was trading. I was trading Nokia, so uh, sure. I was not enough to be. I was not around to be part of ACS back then. Sure, absolutely. And um, obviously, we're going to talk much more about what you do today inside ACS, uh, of course. But just just before we jump to that, uh, you know, of course, writing books and and running your investment strategies is a big part of your life today. But what do you do when you're not working? What do you like spending your time doing outside the office? <laughs> Well, that's an unusual question. I never got that on in, a, in, a, in an interview before. Sure. Uh, well, should I say uh, long walks on the beach and reading a good book? I don't know. What was? <laughs> what do I do? Well, I like photography, actually. Okay. Uh, it's one more, a little bit more, more normal thing I do. Sure. Uh, then, of course, uh, between that and uh, family and a uh, small son, well, sure. how much time is really over? True. True. Excellent. Now, you've written a couple of books about systematic trading strategies, which usually involves a lot of math and equations, but you've actually managed to write them with very little math being being used or shown. And I think you're, what you're trying to promote is the importance of trading broad concepts, not complex super systems, so to speak. Explain to me why this is so important in your view. If you trade 
what most of us see as, as a normal type of systematic models. I mean, now we're excluding, I'm excluding here the uh, high frequency stuff sure. these things because that's a whole different board game. But normal systematic strategies, usually they're about trading broad concepts. I, I, I always see an over-focus on, on details. Usually details don't really matter. So if you, if you discuss with, if I discuss with uh, retail traders who contact me uh, because of the book and these things, a common theme I always see is this focus on the most tiny details, things that I, I wouldn't even bother with. So therefore, I, I, try, I try to focus on, I try to emphasize the larger things. I mean, for instance, you can talk about, do you use, when you do it, uh, you measure a trend, would you use exponential moving average or a simple one or a weighted moving average? And well, my only answer is, I, I don't really care. What's going to be the difference in the end? Sure. Tiny. Sure. It's going to be a rounding error. So people strive for perfection, but essentially perfection is not needed in, in, in this uh, particular instance. I think it's a misconception. Uh, this focus on the details, I believe this comes from, it comes very much from the TA school, I think, the technical analysis school. Right. Where people read all these books about 100 different indicators and the, the uh, five different settings on each and how you can tweak the parameters and how you can optimize things and... It doesn't work like that. Uh, you won't really find a you know, hedge fund manager sitting there optimizing his, his uh, 10 indicators that he's combining to, uh, to get to the perfect buying signals. No one really works on that on the, on the institutional side. It's just, um, this is a bit of a retail illusion. Now you find what kind of phenomenon you want to exploit, what kind mm. of strategy, and it's never about the best possible strategy. There is no best possible strategy. You, you find a style and try to find a good way to trade that style. Sure, sure. Just, just as a quick follow-up, and I, I know it's, it's, it's very related to what we've just talked about, but I mean, you also refer to the value of simplicity and how very simple rules can perform remarkably well. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little more about the, the findings and also how you, you know, got to that conclusion. I mean, was it just through testing or... Or was there something else that, that made that very clear to you that actually simplicity is really, you know, it does really work? Hmm. No, you're absolutely right. First, that the simpler systems are usually the better ones. What so, do you mean by better, by the way? That's uh, you know, something I often get asked. And, and, you know, how do we define better in this world, yeah, do you think? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Better is actually a bad word. Um, hmm. What's a better word here? Are you thinking sort of risk-adjusted returns? Are you thinking when yeah, you... S exactly. I mean, why add complexity if you don't get paid for it? Sure. Uh, you have to get paid a lot to add complexity. Otherwise, the complexity is not worth having there. Mm. Uh, if you put the complexity in, you will have a much more difficult time executing it. It's much less likely to work because it's probably just over-optimized. If you use your 10 indicators uh, that... Uh, has to be working together and give you the signals. Well, odds are that this just happened to work because you over-optimized it. You fitted, you fitted perfectly to, to the recent past. Sure. Now, when I, when I wrote my first book, I thought I made a very simple a trading model. The whole point with the model I show in the first book, um, following the trend, is that the whole point is it's supposed to be a very simple model to describe Generally, what the trend-following industry does. Right. My biggest regret with that book is that I didn't make it even more simple. Um, How could you have done that? Quite easy, actually. And I have to say, I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, the suggestion came to me after I wrote the book by, uh, I think you know him already, uh, Nicole Kologian over in uh, New York at, at Quest. Absolutely. Very good asset manager. Definitely. So his suggestion was, well, did you try just looking at a... Just a 12-month return, nothing else. At first, when I suggested that, I thought, well, like everyone else, he's got to be kidding. <laughs> he wasn't. And I did the math on it. I came back and said, yeah, you're right. I, I should have done this for two reasons I should have done that. Both because it's simpler and therefore nicer. Uh, and it will also have prevented the unfortunate side effect I see sometimes in my book where people mistake my demo system that I made for you know, to explain the phenomenon, explain the, uh, it's like a teaching tool. And once in a while, people contact me and they seem to think I meant that this model is like a perfect 
trading model recommended that people should take these rules and start trading them. And give it 10 years, they probably give you okay return, but this model, these, these rules were not meant as an advice on how to trade. They were meant as a description of what, what the business is on average. So what did Nicole mean by an annual system, if, mm -hmm. if I heard you right before? Sure. Um, this system is often called, a, uh, this type of system is often called a 12-month momentum rule, uh, or 12-month return rule. What you do is you look at two data points. So what was the price yesterday? What was the price a year ago? Is it higher today or higher yesterday or lower yesterday than it was a year ago? Sure. If yesterday's price is higher than it was a year ago, then we go long. If not, we go short. And that's pretty much it. And you do that on a diversified basket of futures. So this is you know, something that would give similar performance as what you demonstrate in the book using a different set, maybe a more classical way of doing trend following. It would actually, embarrassingly enough, it would give better results than the model I presented in my book. Okay. Uh, of course, this is uh, the big disclaimer here. This is, of course, based on a couple of, uh, couple of assumptions. First, you have to trade a broad universe, as you say. Applying this on one single market, well, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Uh, you apply it on, on 50 to 100 different futures markets, so far it works fine. Of course, you have to have, to have some sort of... of uh, risk allocation method or position sizing, if, sizing, if you will. And uh, what I use there is a classic, just a, a volat parity model, which is quite normal. Then, of course, the big downside with this type of model in reality is that uh, you are in all markets at all times, which means you, you're eating a very high level of uh, margin to equity. Sure. But what about, so, so the interesting thing is that you're not trading that model, as far as I understand. Uh, Nicole is not trading that model. What makes that model interesting on one hand, yet I, I've not come across anyone who trades that kind of strategy? No, no. Uh, I wouldn't say go out and trade it exactly like this. But as a learning tool, it is amazing. Right. And it's a benchmark tool as well. Obviously, you develop your own rules the way it makes sense to your, your type of strategy, what you want to accomplish. But benchmark against this, if you can't beat this model, well, then you might have a problem. Sure. Now, it's just not that I intended to go down that model, because obviously I didn't know you were going to bring it up. But I, I'm now I'm curious, and that is, does this model, because we're going to talk about that later on, does this model, does it require the full diversification, meaning that's what trend following often benefits from, i.e. the diversification between different markets? Or could you, in theory, not that I want to jump too much into what we're going to talk about, but could you also apply the same methodology to 50 different stocks or 100 different stocks? Well, you could, but the results will be different. Um, you have to do things a little bit different there, but on the stocks, and I, I would Assume that you want to wait for me, wait and not, not let me jump into that already. Sure. But okay. Anyway, um, but to, to answer your question briefly, in a way, uh, you do need a broad set of things. Otherwise, you apply this just to, to one or even to five markets. Well, it could happen. Any, anything could happen, really. Sure. You can get some very weird results from that. Let's dig into the books uh, a little bit and uh, we'll probably discuss ideas from both books a bit randomly as we're already doing now. So uh, apologies uh, uh, for that. But I wanted to start out with just some general observations that I have made looking at your work and some of the ongoing publications you produce and, and that you appear in. And the first one is about trend following, where you often refer to trend following as being an easy, simple strategy where, and I'm quoting, where anyone can find basic rules on the internet and the fact that it's, uh, you know, it, it, there's not that many ways it can be done. So my question is, um, why do you like describing trend following in this way? Did I say easy? <laughs> I don't know, but I, 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 that's the feeling I get when I read some of these things. And I don't oh, I, mean to be taking the other side, but there could no be a problem. reason why you're describing it this way. Sure. Um, no, I was just surprised a little bit about EC, but then again, I write a lot of things and I, I can't keep track of it myself. Um, EC, yes. On one point, on one side, you can say EC. The rules themselves are often easy. Right. Uh, you look at the rules, the trend following rules are usually not complex. Sure. That's not where the complexity is. Is it easy to, to implement this? Is it easy to, to run this in reality? Well, not always. Uh, then there's a matter, of course, uh, if 
if you run a fund or a larger mandate, you, you probably don't just run one trading model. So how do you combine this? How do you do risk management? There are a lot of, there are a lot of variables that come in in reality. But in theory, if you want to design a trend-following model in a simulation platform, well, that's not terribly difficult. Sure, sure, sure. And if I can just sort of add my uh, two cents, I mean, I agree with you that the concept of trend following is is simple, but I think as soon as you get beyond that, it's really isn't that easy uh, to find the you know to find rules that one can stand the test of time and also can produce a relative return to the drawdowns that comes with it that most people can can stomach. And what I find really interesting at the moment is that the return dispersion between managers that all have maybe 10, 20, 30 years of experience, that dispersion seems to be on the rise. And to me, that means that a lot of people with a lot of actual experience is having to find slightly new ways of doing trend following in order to stay competitive. So so I agree with you. There are some sim- simple things or sides to, to trend following, but I think there's a it's becoming a little bit more complex. In sure, and, and you're also, uh, there's one thing that, it's not, it's not a reason why uh, why you see what you're seeing, the differences between many managers. Okay. But obviously some differences are due to their different, uh, different uh, speed of the trend following, some is due to their uh, different focus on different asset classes and so on, but sure. this is all news. We all knew this before, uh, at least those of you who read my book and you all did, I hope. <laughs> uh, but the new, the new thing, well, reasonably new anyway, is that the number of pure trend followers is now quite small. Right. Now, most of this, most shops in the CTA industry, they're primarily trend followers, not all of them, but most of them are primarily trend followers. That doesn't mean that the trend following is the only strategy or even always the dominant strategy. Mm. There has been a trend for, well, for some, for some years now to combine strategies, to reduce volatility, to find ways to um, to cover the uh, the drawdowns, you introduce uh, carry strategies, calendar spreads, uh, you introduce uh, counter trend models. There are all kinds of separate, say, satellite strategies, like I like to call them, that you introduce as overlays. Yeah. Now this has, in sometimes for some funds, it worked out fine. For others, it backfired. But this is, in my view, the main focus, the, the, the main uh, cause in this. Um, to say the, the increasing divergence in performance. Sure. No, I think that's a very valid point. Um, and I also just want to mention that I, I really like your analogy about trend following where you you compare it to, to watching a scary movie where you say that the happy ending is never in doubt, but it takes a lot of nerve to sit through the whole film. And and just like we have, you know, the emotional roller coaster that trend following gives us and indeed any other investment strategy uh, you know, once it's live and it's real money and you're having a real drawdown, it's it's mm-hmm. a different thing than than just looking at yeah. a... Yeah, uh... and you have, there's another important thing as well I, I want to mention on that topic is that you can't just blindly follow the rules. I mean, even if you have great rules that worked great for you for 30 years, there might be a situation coming up that just, just didn't occur for 30 years. Sure. I mean, take this year ago, for instance, what happened in the uh, in the Swiss uh, <laughs> when, they, uh, when, when, they, when the peg or the floor was uh, sure. what was uh, let go. Now that caused some for some CTA funds it caused extreme moves up or down. Yeah. For most it didn't do that much, but I would say it shouldn't be a big event for a trend follower. Mm. Now the models may may think so. You run your simulation, you might get some really extreme stuff there. But if you actually took those rules, if you actually follow them completely, then you have to stop and question, I mean, how, why did no one do any critical thinking here? Uh, I mean, for instance, there, there, were, there were three main positions uh, that would be concerned, right? You have the, the Euro future, the Swiss future, and the um, uh, Euro Swiss future. Sure. So why would you trade both the Swiss future and the Euro future, for instance? Mm-hmm. I, I completely understand trading the Euro future, but the Swiss future would have given you the exact same position on a very high correlated basis. Yeah. And of course, if you had that position, if you were short the Swiss all the way down, well, you took a massive hit that day. Mm. Uh, if you were in the, um, the RF future, the um, uh, Euro-Swiss, then you really have to wonder here because that's where things can get really dangerous. Sure. So you had you an artificially low volatility, yeah. which means a standard 
standard models, which would use some sort of a uh, ball parity uh, position sizing, they would tell you to take an absolutely insane position size. Yeah. Those who followed that, well, those are the ones who saw the 25-30% up or down that that month, depending on what side they happen to be on. Sure. Now, I mean, that's a very good point. And uh, one thing I, I recall from having uh, last year interviewed a few managers around that time of the move. My good friend Jerry Parker, actually, uh, in the interview I did with him, which is just mm -hmm. a short uh, uh, review, Uh, he said, well, you know, you always have to put in a minimum level of volatility regardless of what the actual volatility is. And I think a lot of uh, people, uh, if they didn't do it before, they'd certainly do it now um, because it's not going to be the last time we see uh, mm -hmm. these artificial uh, volatility. And I guess even December uh, was a good example when we had the uh, ECB uh, decision, which obviously caused some of the short-term Uh, European bond markets to to move quite uh, extensively, uh, and again, uh, you know, if you don't have a minimum level of volatility for individual markets, you're going to run yep. into trouble. Exactly, and you have a similar situation in uh, actually right now. You had for quite some time in uh, primarily European uh, stir markets, that is the uh, the short term interest rates markets. Right, because there you have a very clear asymmetrical risk, which your trend models would be completely unaware of. Yeah. So you're trading over 100, which means The, the settlement there would imply that the banks are willing to lend to each other in an unsecured basis and pay for the privilege. Now, we might stay there for a while during this extreme situation. We might even move up a little bit. But either, either we move a tiny bit up or we can make a huge move down. Sure. So there's a very asymmetrical risk. And uh, these things you have to take into account. You can't just run a trend-following model and close your eyes. Absolutely. No, that's true. Now, I think a lot of people who look at the stock markets and as, as we as human beings, you know, we have a tendency to only focus on the sort of the recent history. And, and since we've had a bull market now for six, seven years, it would be natural to conclude that doing trend following on stocks would be very straightforward and very profitable. But there's a problem with that logic when I read your book. Explain to me what the issues are in, 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 in doing that. Couple of issues. Let me say, let me start with. Uh, in the book, I made a clear distinction between trend following and momentum. Right. I understand a lot of people have asked me about this, but uh, obviously, I've made that semantic distinction there to make a point, because in my view, it's very different. Uh, the alternative would be to say that trend following in stock on stocks works differently than trend following on futures. Uh, that's also correct, but it's easier to make the point if you use a different terminology, and therefore, I was very deliberately using the momentum term instead of the trend-following term in the book uh, to make sure people understand what I'm talking about. Now, the difference is, as you know, when you're running a trend-following model on, on futures, it works because you're trading so many different things. Maybe for the next two years, the, um, the commodity futures will fail completely. Maybe there's no trends there. Maybe you keep losing there, but maybe you make all your money in, in the currency futures or in the, um, in the bond futures. That's, in the end, the entire rationale for the trend following type models that most markets fail, fail most, of the time, most of the time, but there will always be something that will produce enough profits to make up for it. Sure. And when you trade stocks, well, the good thing is you have a lot of different instruments to choose from. You have thousands and thousands instead of just a hundred or so for, for futures. But on the other hand, you're dealing with a, with a lot of instruments with very high internal correlation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to gain at the same time, you're going to lose at the same time. Most importantly, you're going to lose at the same time. <laughs> uh, things might look reasonably uncorrelated on the upside, but then, like this week, the market goes down, and guess what? All the stocks, even the great ones, will take a big beating at the same time. Sure. Your risk models go out the window. Uh, the other problem is, of course, which stocks do you trade? If you trade futures, you have the luxury of trading all of them all the time. What's the problem? You have a hundred or so to choose from, right? Anything that trends, you can take. Any sure. signal you get, just get it. Now, in a bull market, you will get a buy signal on every single stock out there. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah. You can't take them all. You need some sort of ranking method. Otherwise, how do you determine which stock to buy? Mm. And to say you do normal trend following, that would mean you stay in it until it stops going up, right? But the problem with that is, in a bull market, everything goes up. It doesn't mean that this is the best stock to have. The stock might go sideways or slightly up, and you're sitting on this for a long time, wasting your your um, your capital on it, while other stocks are skyrocketing. So you have to trade 
differently. That's why I presented the book. I present a model to uh, to rank the stocks, mm-hmm. to pick stocks in a in a systematic way to decide which stocks to be in, uh, to decide when you close them out, when another stock is performing better. Mm-hmm. And I would say the single most important thing is um, don't buy stocks in the bear market. You have to have some sort of filter for what is the overall stock market doing because you can't just expect stocks to move up in the same extent in a bear market. That is, if the general index is falling, you can't expect to find a lot of great buying opportunities out there. True. So your rules should be aware of what's going on in the overall market. So that's the main, the two main differences you would you would flag because there's another one I'm sure you, you, you're going to come to that anyway and that is of course that in your momentum trading strategy for stocks mm-hmm. um, you don't go short and in fact you go as far as saying that shorting stocks is a is a fool's errand tell me more about the, the, the reason behind this most people lose money on shorting stocks shorting stocks is very very difficult sure. can it be done are the people doing this for a living and making great money yes of course there is but it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that most people should do it or should even try. Stocks that are in a bear market are very, very difficult to trade. They have a tendency to behave very violently. Mm-hmm. So you have small moves, moves down. Uh, it keeps ticking down day after day, week after week. And suddenly you get this one day move, some events coming out, some some banks, some government coming in, whatever else happens. And you get a massive move against you and you lose all your money in a day. Mm. This happens all the time for stocks. A share goes down a lot because of horrible conditions. You're short for for months and everything is great. And then, of course, some other company realizes it's a great takeover candidate and they buy it and you lose all your money. Uh, Shorting in general for everything is much more difficult than buying, Mm. especially if you have a a longer term time horizon. And stocks are even worse, of course. Sure. I wonder, I mean, obviously people should go and and buy your book and, and, and read about how the details are in, in, in terms of, of how to trade stocks the way you suggest. But but I just have a, a I'm just curious about something. Okay, if we take the the the, the, the you know your your suggestion about buying stocks that move up, essentially that's what you're saying. And you should buy the ones that have the most momentum and you shouldn't short them and you should have some kind of filter for the environment, which I by the way I'd like to talk to maybe a little bit more about that bit. Mm-hmm. But could you add if you don't want to short individual stocks, would it make sense at all to to short, say, the index? Uh, because obviously we know that there are some good moves on the downside in equities once in a while. We haven't seen them for a while, but uh, they do occur. So have you ever thought about uh, sort of that uh, sure. as, a, as a possibility? Uh, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things that make sense that... I at times would recommend against, especially in the books, because frankly, most people reading the books are retail uh, re- retail traders, and I try therefore just to err on the responsible side. If you understand my point, sure, sure. Uh, do I short stocks? Do I short indices? Yes, sure, of course I do. Uh, not in a huge extent; it's never a main strategy, but yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, you can look at, say, for instance, uh, if you. Even if you want to look at beta neutral strategies and these kind of things, where you try to short uh, short out the index completely, uh, that's fine. If you really know what you're doing and you really have the the models to, to monitor it and you understand the, uh, the potential risk with it, for most people it's not a for most people it's not a good idea. But uh, if you know what you're doing, you understand what's, what's what the risks are, then why not? Sure, 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 sure. Now, again, I'm just sort of jumping around a little bit on 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 sort of different. Uh, different topics and, and feel free to to uh, go down other ideas that you want to talk about but but a lot of people in the money management business uh, you know they're usually very focused on explaining you know what they do and how good they are at doing it in order to convince investors to let them manage their money but but you do it slightly differently you spend a lot of time giving away specific rules as to how investors could do it themselves instead of giving you the money uh, so to speak, why why is that? And I'm oh. sure you have had this question before. <laughs> yes, or variations of it. Or variations okay. of it. Yeah. First, why why write a book? Well, I had fun doing it. I wanted to write a book. I wrote a book. I had time. Most people don't have time. Most people are not allowed to. Most people are employed in a capacity where they either all the time is gone or they are not allowed to do anything like that. I have my freedom. I do what I like. I want to write a book. 
Uh, why do I give away these secrets? Well, frankly, all, all the wrong people. I think I wrote that in one of them, that all, all the wrong people know this anyway. So who am I really hiding it from? Uh, what I write in the books is, hopefully there are some ideas here and there, even for the professionals, but no one's really going to read the book thinking that this is great. I'm going to go put a billion bucks in the market and, and exploit this idea. The people who manage large amount of money, the people who have run hedge funds, it's the management shops, they have quants employed. Either they already know what I write, write in there, or they can figure it out. Mm. It's not that it's not something really revolutionary. I try to explain it in mm. a way that hopefully the way I explain it is new. Sure. Hopefully I can contribute a little bit with this, but there's nothing really secret in there. And to be completely frank, I think the strategy of getting a little bit well-known by uh, by the books has sure. paid off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's been a lot of investments, uh, a lot of businesses coming in because of this. People who you know, people who read the books contact me over the websites. They um, come with a couple of questions and maybe something comes of it, maybe something doesn't, but it never hurts. It never hurts. Now, but I do have a follow-up question. It's not specific to, to, to your books, but but clearly there are a lot of choices today where investors can either read a book or buy a system and they might get this false idea or hope uh, that you know by following you know whatever they they they, they buy they they will become a, a great trader and and something clearly as you described before certain things you you have to probably leave to to the professional so my question is really Do you have any advice to people who either read your books or other books or uh, buy some of these things that we all know is available out there in, 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 in on the internet as to how they can determine if they are equipped to do it themselves or whether they're better off letting their investments be managed by other people? How, how, can, you, how can people figure that out? You have, to, you have to, of course, look at your situation, see what kind of knowledge do you have to begin with. Look at the material you've been reading, see it doesn't make sense. Uh, I think the um, most important thing to look at when you read different material is to see what does it promise or imply about your probable and imminent success. <laughs> uh, if someone writes book material or coaching something else and they promise that they, uh, if they make crazy promises, if someone says they uh, they train millionaires for a living and they make people normal people into millionaires in you know, a year or so, they promise uh, triple digit returns. Well, no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't exist. If you're even considering something like that, well, and you're probably not, at least not yet, equipped to to manage your own money because then you're believing in things that are very impossible. But staying in the realm of, of sanity, well. The first thing is take very low risk. Uh, I would say the main mistake that retail traders do is that they take on risks that that would get people fired or uh, or worse in the hedge fund world. Uh, people say that we take a lot of risks in the business, but when I see what what retail traders do, well, that's <laughs> that, that that goes on the crazy side. Um, you have to have realistic expectations, and of course. That's usually where it fails because with realistic expectations, it's no longer interesting for, for many retail traders. When you start understanding that a compound return of, say, 15% or so maybe per year, even 10% a year over time is considered to be quite good, mm. then a lot of people lose interest. Um, but of course, if you aim for 50% or 100%, you will most likely, well, most likely you will lose most of your money before you learn the mistake. You have a couple of good years, a couple of bad years and wild swings and hopefully you get out before you lose everything, but no one in history has sustained such a high return. Sure. I guess on, on this topic, I uh, I noticed a, a blog post you, you wrote uh, uh, and I don't remember exactly when that was written, um, but it was titled something along the lines, why managing your own money is a bad trade. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me, Tell me a little bit about uh, about that one. Yeah, uh, obviously my headlines are usually written in a way to get people to click on. Yeah. But uh, as as I like to say, well, if you're going to clickbait people, you have to at least deliver afterwards. So <laughs> uh, I try to make sure there's some actual content to back up my my sometimes uh, cheeky uh, cheeky titles. Cheeky titles. Yes, yes, exactly. But as long as I try to deliver, um, well, it's a bad trade. What I try to point out there is 
many people have this dream of trading for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, but I would suggest modifying that dream a little bit. A lot of people are saying that the biggest dream is to be able to sit at home or have their own office and just trade your own money all day and have a great return and be a professional trader. Well, my point being, if you're going to do that anyway, why don't you throw in other people's money in the bucket too? Why? Well, because you get a base fee on that and you get a performance fee. You can manage your own money at the same time. That's not the issue. But just your own money, well, that's risky because maybe you have a bad year, you make no money, and how are you going to pay for that office and the computer you have in front of you? Mm. On the other hand, if you have client money in there as well, you can do the exact same thing. You can still be a professional trader, still, you still trade your own money for a living, but other people's money as well. Now you can think more long term because now you don't have this constant stress that you have to make money before the end of the month, otherwise you can't pay the bill, you can't pay your, your, uh, your, your food, you can't pay the car payments, and your wife's going to leave you, right? So what you do is that you have, you have this base fee coming in. That may, means you can, you can relax, you can do things more, more calmly, you can think long term, you don't have to take big risks just to make, uh, make ends meet by the end of the month. You probably manage your own money better, you probably manage your client's money better that way, and everyone's happy. Sure. I know that at the end of that blog post, uh, you do have some reasons why people shouldn't take outside money to manage. Um, and some of them you refer to as excuses, some of them you refer to as valid. What, what, what do you think, you, you know, what, what, what are the valid, are there any valid reasons why not to do it though? Well, one valid reason would be that you simply don't like people. You don't want to deal with people. <laughs> you don't want to deal with clients. You don't want to have the, the hassle of the, uh, uh, getting investors, uh, reporting to investors, possible compliance issues and so on, and that's fine. If you really don't want to deal with that, that, that's fine. But then you made an economic decision based on your preferences, which economically might not be the best, but fine, it's a valid reason. Sure. Um, another thing is, of course, at least here in Europe these days, and you know what I'm talking about there, yeah. regulations are getting um, borderline ridiculous. And Mr. Regulator, if you're listening to this, I have absolutely no problem with what you're doing in the business. It's getting very, very strict and very, very expensive to comply with increasing regulatory requirements. The hurdles of entry are going up fast. I, I mentioned before that I got lucky I got into the business at a time when it was easier and cheaper to start something in the business. Sure. These days, let's say uh, someone comes to you with a million bucks and asks you to manage if you're based in Europe, well, that doesn't make any sense. Sure. There's no way you can make any money from that. Someone comes to you with 10 million, well, you're not going to make enough to have you know, proper salary, but at least you can start something. So that, that's very valid reason as well. That uh, My understanding is, and I have really no knowledge myself about this, but my understanding is that uh, this is still much easier in the US. Okay. Yeah, well, it may, it may well be. There's no doubt that regulation is on the up and it's probably not going to end here so uh, yep. so that is definitely something to consider if you're thinking about doing and, it on your own yeah and let me mention i just remember this one more valid reason of course there's probably more of them but i just remember one in a way that maybe you have a trading strategy which which you cannot scale right sure now, if, if you're doing i don't know it's quick intraday scalping back and forth you take a couple of lots here a couple of lots there well if someone puts another 10 million in the bucket maybe you can't do it anymore so sure. that's of course absolutely valid sure so just for people to, to realize this, because I'm sure a lot of people will go and look up your, your blog and, 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 and your website, et cetera, et cetera. But, but again, just to stress the point that, that we talked about before, and that is that a lot of the things that you might write about or use a title to when people see it, I think it's a good idea just to read the article before they make their conclusion, because often you, you actually end up arguing the opposite than what you, the title might say. So, uh, uh, or something different at least so so just just be aware of that um, well, the, the thing you learn very quickly when you run a website is that uh, if you have a title about uh, how to use uh, momentum analytics to beat the uh, the S&P benchmark in the long run no one's going to read that sure no one even if you write the best possible article no one's going to read that sure no that's true now but staying on that theme and staying about blog posts uh, in in general and the fact that you like to have these sort of uh, juicy uh, articles from time to time, you did take a step and you even did it early on in, in our conversation today. You, you've taken a step at technical analysis uh, some time ago saying that, 
you know, the visual nature of technical analysis lends itself to get rich, quick stories. Mm -hmm. So how do people tell the difference between technical analysis and say momentum or trend following trading? How, how do they do that? Well, common sense, I guess. <laughs> See, the problem with, with technical analysis is there's no definition of it. Everything is technical analysis. You're dealing with the price, well, it's TA, right? I wouldn't say that all technical analysis is nonsense. Uh, I spent a lot of time with technical analysis, especially when I was younger. I, I read all, all the books. I've gone through all the phases, like most people. Mm. I'm sure you can come up with some sort of seven stages of technical analysis model that people go through before they you know, finally accept it and move on. Sure. There are a lot of weird things in there. And as I pointed out before, uh, some of the technical analysis organizations are really guilty in promoting it. They give it some sort of um, uh, legitimate, what is the word in English? Uh, they, they legitimize it, is that okay. correct? Yeah. yeah. Uh, by including it in their courses. Um, there, are, there are some things, uh, some particular pet peeves of mine, like uh, Elliott Wave Theory, for instance, about you know how the universe moves in magical waves and you can predict and so on. You know, these are fluffy things that can never be proven and disproven. And if I say that I come up with a new idea that there's actually seven magical waves, uh, I'm sure I can write a book about it and I can make a lot of money from it. But no one can prove me wrong, right? <laughs> Maybe there are eight ways. What do I know? Uh, you have funny things like Fibonacci numbers where, you know, you have all these decimals. It looks like uh, there's something magic with this. What is it? Uh, zero, six, one, eight. I don't know. If someone tells me that this 0.6, whatever the ratio actually is there, is somehow better than saying approximately two-thirds, well, I want to see some math on that, but sure. no one's producing that. There's a lot of nonsense there, but ignoring the more, ignoring the new age nonsense, which you know every reasonable adult should be able to ignore anyway, then you're still left with a lot of things that just cloud the picture. Mm. Like there's all these indicators, for instance. And many of the indicators might have a value, but once you start using an indicator for everything, it's a small expression like um, if, if, all you, if all you have is a hammer, you start seeing nails everywhere. <laughs> and that's the problem with technical analysis too, that you, you have all of these indicators, you throw, you throw a whole bunch of them at the wall and see what happens after a while, right? And it doesn't mean that you have anything of value in the end. back to your books in some way and discuss some of the topics uh, but in the context of perhaps more the usual questions that I ask uh, my guests uh, which relates maybe a little bit more to to your own trading but before we go there there's just a couple of topics I wanted to bring up that I thought was interesting as well especially I think again no, a lot of people know you for trend following or momentum strategies but actually um, you also highlighted to me that counter trend models paradoxically can you know be beneficial in a portfolio so mm -hmm. let's explore that for a little bit uh, a little bit more because that's not something i think a lot of people usually would maybe uh, associate with you mm -hmm. well there are a couple of types of trend of, of counter trend models to begin with uh, there's one i prefer more than the other um, what most people will think about is the models that just goes against a strong trend. Now, those can be dangerous. Uh, there are ways to trade those as well, but they're not as interesting in my view. There would be, for instance, you have, a, you have a very strong bull market or a, let's say the oil situation at the moment. It comes crashing down, crashing down, crashing down, and all of a sudden you decide, well, here's where it stops, right? And you buy. Sure. That, that's one type of counter-trend trade. I don't like that so much. Not that it's impossible to, to, uh, to work that way, but I don't like it so much. What I prefer instead is the type of counter trend models that trade in the, in the direction of a dominant trend, mm -hmm. but enters after a, um, a certain type of pullback in that trend. Right. Now, that type of model came from, and this is certainly not a new idea. Uh, I've seen a lot of other people doing, some this, doing similar things in the past. But the idea here came from the realization that many of you out there probably had that trend following models tend to stop out too early especially medium-term trend-following models. Right. That, that's interesting, yeah. So what if we measure where these stops are normally taken? And we take the opposite side. Mm -hmm. So when the long positions stop out, mm -hmm. you enter. 
Uh, easy way to do this, and I, I think I published uh, a code of this on this for a while ago. Must have been a year or two ago even. Uh, I published uh, I published this as an indicator, half half jokingly as an indicator because I usually criticize indicators. Right. <laughs> uh, I made an indicator which measures the number of ATR units you are from the recent extreme in the trend. Right. Now, if you read my first book, uh, which you claim to have done, sure. you know that that model stops out after three ATR units from the recent trend extreme. Yeah. So I just made a model that simply buys exactly that. It measures how, ma how many, first it checks, are we in uptrend or downtrend? Mm. And based on that, it checks how many ATR units are we away from the most recent extreme? And then when we hit three, you buy, or short, of course, depending on, on uh, if sure. Sure. up or downtrend. Uh, as an entry model, it's not that bad. It works quite okay. Of course, an entry, entry logic in itself is not enough to have a complete trading model, but it's a start. Mm. But that's the type of model I'm, I'm talking about. Sure. I just want to mention to people who may not be familiar with the term ATR that uh, Andreas is using, but that is referring to average to range in this case. Um, uh, I, I think it's interesting what you say. Uh, having said that, also I would say that... Um, You know, since a lot of people, and, and I would certainly agree with that, that are, are a lot of trend-following strategies that probably in a broad spectrum have similar entries and similar exits and, you know, a, a three average to range from, from the last uh, extreme is, is probably not uh, uh, a bad uh, estimation of that. It, wouldn't it be... Could it be argued that it's a little bit uh, dangerous to to go against those forces when you're, if you're trying to then actually join and and buy when they sell and sell when they buy, so to speak, or or it, does that really not really matter when you test something? I, I, like I don't that? find it to be a high risk situation. Of course, right. you need to have some sort of exit model in the whole thing, yeah. Sure. But uh, I, I don't find it to be any any higher risk. Sure. And then of course you could, uh, if you like, you could argue that uh, my plan here all along was to write first a book to make everyone. <laughs> exit the trend models of the three ATR units and then I make a model to take the opposite side and I'm not going to comment on that. I'm sure there's some cynical <laughs> people out there thinking that that's exactly why you did it, but let's uh, let's not go there. Now, before we go to uh, talk a little bit about your, your, your own business, that's how I call it, but it's more about uh, sort of your experiences as, as running your own business, but, but you actually also wrote something about uh, starting... Uh, a trading business, what it takes, what's realistic, what people are missing. How would you sum up that kind of uh, theme? That uh, because I think a lot of people who listen to us today, you know, a lot, I mean, there are more emerging managers than there are established managers for sure. So, so uh, clearly, that's something that people I think will would be interested in a little bit as to to what you because you've been around for a while, you've started a couple of businesses. Um, you know what you think it 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 takes, and we talked about the regulation. I accept that, but yeah, the, that cannot be overstressed. Sure. Uh, if you ignore regulations, I know a lot of people do that. Uh, think they can go under the radar for a while, manage some money, no harm done, right? Everyone is in agreement. The clients are happy with it. They're happy with it. Let's just go with it, right? I would still recommend against that. The problem is. Even if everyone's happy, you're managing your uncle's money and he doesn't care and so on. Well, if something happens, you have a loss, someone gets unhappy, someone hears, hears about this who doesn't like you, whatever could happen here and regulators find out about this and you are done in the business. Uh, you will not be able to go into the business again and take this very seriously. This is not the same business as 10, 15 years ago where things were easier on that front. Now, it's very, very strict follow these rules. Uh, having said that, um, starting a business, well, the cost side is the first thing that people miss. Right. It's very easy to think, well, I'm going to make X amount of dollars per year, right? So you look at what kind of trading you need for that. But uh, the revenue side is not the only thing you need to look at in your business, is it? You may or may not need an office. Uh, say you need a Bloomy or a Reuters, well, that's another 2K a, a, a month. Maybe you can get away with something cheaper, I don't know. But you will have a lot of overhead costs to begin with. You will have to uh, make sure you can cover this with, with base fees. Never, never budget with performance fee. Performance fee may or may not come at the end of the year, but if you're depending on performance fee to, um, to survive in the business, then 
and the business is not sustainable, it's not going to work, then it's depending on luck. Uh, you have to be able to cover your base fees with, with your base income. And that's, of course, your, uh, your um, management fee. Uh, the difficulty to start a business, uh, ignoring regulations, uh, disregarding regulations, is still uh, depending on where you live. Uh, how much money you need at the end of the month left over and how much money your potential staff will need, well, it varies dramatically from place to place. Uh, incidentally, you might not want to start a business in, in, in Switzerland for that reason. It's not, it's not a low salary place. It's, uh, it's tough to get people for, um, well, for, for decent money here or for decent money in uh, many other places, many other countries in comparison. The need for a large base revenue is, is in the primary thing, and for that you need a large asset base. Obviously, if you can take between 1% and 2%, hopefully, in, in base fee, just doing the math on that, just paying your own salary takes quite a lot of, 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 uh, of asset under management, uh, paying all the systems, all the other costs, paying the brokers, paying the, uh, the administrator, the custodian. There's a lot of people needing, needing to get paid before you see anything. So sure. the initial asset base, that is the key trick. Sure. How do you get that? Sure. No, that's fine. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of more the usual topics that I would uh, discuss with with my with, with the managers on, and it, you know, it, it somewhat relates to how you then build a strong organization, and and let's assume that you overcome some of these financial uh, uh, challenges that you just mentioned. Uh, but in your case, I wanted to ask you sort of more. Uh, uh, focus on 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 research because that's something that you've done a lot of. Now, investors they will put a lot of emphasis on the research capability of a manager when making their selections, uh, and clearly research is a large, uh, to large extent, the heart of a systematic manager. But you also, uh, you know, you also have a, a a an allocator or an investor hat to put on. So if we put that on for a little bit now, what kind of research? And capability do you look for when you are looking to allocate money away? Hmm. Well, okay, limiting to systematic managers uh, because we, um, sure, we, as you know, we, we allocate to a lot of different things. Uh, something I I shouldn't say on a public podcast because that means the amount of calls and emails I'm getting is going to increase from various oh, managers. most definitely, Andreas. Yes, uh, don't worry, I have a assistant to forward them to <clears throat> anyway. What I look for? Well, first of all, I very, very rarely invest in Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.